That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary and every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash bpshow. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Michael Cohen sues Donald Trump for $1.9 million in unpaid bills. <laughs> Guess what? He's never going to see that money. <laughs> we know Donald Trump doesn't pay his bills. Hey, hello, everybody, especially to Michael Cohen after his testimony last week. What do you say? Here we are. The Bill Press Show on a Friday. Friday, March 8, 2019. So good to see you today. And thank you for climbing on board here, the Bill Press bus, as we uh, head out from Washington, D.C. to join you everywhere in this great country of ours with the news of the day, our guests with their opinions on the news of the day, and your comments as well. Always welcome on the news of the day with uh, lots to talk about. Yes, indeed. The first of the sentencing hearings for Paul Manafort yesterday, where uh, the judge stunned Paul Manafort and uh, the defense attorneys and the prosecutors and every legal person, scholar in the United States with a stunningly lenient sentence for all the crimes that Paul Manafort has been convicted of and that he's been held in jail for. Um, we also take a look at the big vote today on H.R. 1. Uh, this is the number one priority for Democrats in Congress uh, on campaign finance reform, voting rights reform, uh, all kinds of um, important measures there. Uh, and we'll take a look at the big vote yesterday on the so-called anti-hate resolution. Uh, again, get ready to send your comments on the news of the day to join the conversation. You know how to do so. Send your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. On Twitter, at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Alrighty, just a couple of other stories making news. Let's go to Fairhaven, Vermont, Bill, because the thing about Fairhaven, Vermont, is they don't have a mayor, they have a town manager. But what they do is they have an honorary or they have a vote to select an honorary mayor. 
which is yeah. what they did earlier this week, and they now have an honorary mayor. And let's just say Fairhaven, Vermont, is the land of Lincoln. Lincoln is the name of the nanny goat <laughs> that was chosen by the townspeople for a one-year honorary post as mayor of Fairhaven, Vermont. What they do is they gather up ballots of, uh, and you can vote for pets to be the honorary mayor. So they had 16 different pets that were all on the ballot. Uh, Lincoln, a three-year-old Nubian goat, uh, won. Uh, Lincoln beat out Sammy, who was a golden retriever, who got 10 votes. Lincoln got 13 votes. He is the most progressive mayor of Vermont since Bernie Sanders <laughs> was right. mayor of Burlington. That's right. That's right. So, Fairhaven, you're in good hands with, uh, with, with Lincoln. Lincoln the Goat yes. as your mayor. Uh, this is a story that freaks me out completely. A man by the name of Jeremy Taylor uh, went out. He tried to drive in a blizzard in Oregon. And his SUV got stuck in the snow, and he couldn't walk to stay safety. So he stayed in his car. But because the blizzard was so bad... It took them five days to get with him. Oh, my To get to him. God. All right? So he was not alone. He was with his dog, but he had nothing to eat. So the only thing he had to eat, not the dog. Don't look at me like he's going to eat the dog. He's not going to eat the dog. He had three Taco Bell sauce packets. Oh, God. So apparently when you go to Taco Bell, they give yeah. you these hot sauces. And he had these three hot sauces in his car. And that's all he had. And he lived off of those for five days days until Whoa. he was rescued well taco bell heard about this of course and they said we're happy we can help in fact we're going to give you free food for the next year i don't know if that's a punishment or a reward but either way he's going to get all the taco bell he can eat for the next year and he says it actually saved his life I would have started chewing on the seats. Yeah, exactly. Did you think <laughs> leather has some nutritional value I'm leather sure. seats right <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. Paul Manafort gets 47 months, only 47 months in prison. Hell, in most states, you can get 10 years for smoking a joint. What the hell is going on? Hey, hello, everybody. <laughs> Good to see you on this Friday, March the 8th. It is the Bill Press Show. That's me. And it's great to, ha great to have you part of the program here as we reach out to you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and join you all across this great land of ours, north, south, east, west. We are there with you coast to coast on the radio and television and online with all the news of the day. Great lineup of guests uh, for you today and lots and lots of news to uh, talk about. Uh, those of you regulars know uh, uh had a couple of days uh, in Los Angeles, so a uh, little business trip to Los Angeles. So thanks to uh, Peter Ogburn and to Sabrina Siddiqui and to Chris Liu for filling in while I was gone. You know, the great thing about being out in the middle of the week is so I can come back on Friday and all I, I just talk about everything that they talked about for the last three days. You know, because I, I haven't had my chance to get give my two cents about what happened Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So... There you go. You know, get ready. I, 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 there's a running joke here on the show that every time that you take time off, 
something monumental happens. Usually the world blows up. This and time it didn't. you know what? It's been a yeah. not-so-crazy week. I'm not, not totally without I, I, news to talk about. It has but, not been a no. dead week. But, but normally, in, like, something huge. Like, I was convinced yeah. the Mueller report was going to drop because you were going to be out of town for right. a couple of days. Or Donald Trump resign. Or something like that, yeah. right? Like, this is kind of what happens every time you leave. But it, it everything managed to kind of stay together. Yeah, right. You know, um, by, by the way, one little uh, – I could bore you by telling you uh, <laughs> all about my trip to L.A., um, but I love Los Angeles. It was great to be there and see a lot of good friends um, and visit the incredibly wonderful downtown L.A. City Library. Um, maybe the, one, of the, one of the best, if not the best, in the entire country. Uh, but here's a little insight that I got into ride-sharing. Okay, so when I got arrived in LAX, a little time on my hands, so I Ubered downtown. Stayed downtown uh, at the um, Biltmore Hotel. And so the Uber from LAX to the Biltmore with tip, 29 bucks. Yesterday morning, I'm heading back. And I wasn't sure how long it would take to get to LAX. I had an early morning flight. I wanted to be sure I got there. So when I walked down to the front door of the hotel, there was a cab right there. So I hopped in the cab. Okay. Same distance. Same amount of time, just the reverse trip, right? Cab with tip, $64. How can cabs survive in this era of air, of ride sharing? And in fact, if you look at the number of cabs in the streets these days, they are way, way down. I mean, I noticed that in New York. I've noticed it here, and I noticed it in Los Angeles. But, you know, who can, the only people who would, Pay for the cabs are people who are on a business expense, or the businesses don't care how much it costs. It, it it's really kind of a tough to me. It was double edged sword, stunning. right? Because uh, especially for a longer ride, like out to the airport or something like that, which a lot of these things yeah, are. Yeah. Uh, because you know you have these taxis, these cabs. There are regulations on them. They have people that you know make sure that they're running safe and smooth, and they have yeah, a whole hiring right. process and all this stuff. And then ride sharing. It's kind of a gamble. Yeah, it's cheap, but cheaper, I should say. But yeah, like it is. It is sort of a gamble, but you know, the same time for the most. My experience has been always. I've never had a bad experience in ride sharing, but so it's sort of the same experience. You get in the back. It's a pr- not pretty good car. Not all cabs are limos, right? I mean, some cabs are pretty junky too. Sure. Right? You're back of the car, and there's somebody driving you, and you go get from point A to point B. Why should you pay double? Because one of them has a medallion up front, right? So I, I, I think, and by the way, and I have always resisted the urge to just go all lift sharing. I always try to get cabs when I can, but it's just that, that, that to me was uh, a stunning example of why lift sharing has been, is just taken over and how slow the cab industry, and many of them are union members, and uh, you know, as, as am I, I'm a big supporter, but they've got to adjust or uh, they're going to be just out of business totally. Um, at any rate, as we said, we join you on the radio on statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and on the great WCPT out in Chicago in the Chicago area. Looking at you on Free Speech TV and, of course, online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, this unbelievable sentence yesterday. So Paul Manafort 
Uh, and this is for the tax evasion and the financial fraud uh, part of his case. He um, will be sentenced again next week for other charges that he faces, and he's been found guilty of lying to Congress and, uh, I think, filing some false documents or whatever. I forget exactly. But anyhow, the first of the sentencing was yesterday. Prosecutors were asking 19 to 25 years. He's 69 years old, by the way. Basically thought that that meant he's going to end his days in prison. Uh, And that's what legal scholars said based on other people being white-collar crimes for the same crimes, getting roughly 20, 24, 25 years. That's what they expected. And the judge said that Paul Manafort has already suffered a lot in prison, and so therefore he gave him just about four years, 47 months. Unbelievable. Uh, one I saw that one uh, attorney yesterday pointed out that um, he had just represented a client in New York who got 36, he was sentenced to 36 to 72 months for stealing $100 in coins at a, from a, the laundry room in some residential building. 36 to 72 months. Paul, Paul, Paul Manafort gets 47 for cheating us of millions and millions of dollars in unpaid taxes and t- all kinds of financial fraud with these Russian oligarchs in the Ukraine. Um, the, uh, another attorney pointed out, I was reading this morning, about a woman who was in prison. She got out, and she was, but she was still on probation. And she voted in 2016. She thought she could. She was in prison any longer. She was on probation. Uh, she voted. She got five years for voting. For voting! Doing her civic duty, okay. She wasn't allowed to, but, I mean, she didn't willingly go in there and try to vote, vote for one person... One vote, five years. Paul Manafort, 47 months. It's just insane. Absolutely insane. Um, uh, And, of course, he showed up in prison in a wheelchair and a green jumpsuit. Um, And and everybody says it doesn't matter how long he was sentenced for because, in fact, Donald Trump can't wait to pardon him. That's be, the scary part. That'll right? be the ultimate insult. I, I yeah. hate to think of it that way, right? But it, it really doesn't matter what his sentence was, because I got a feeling the pardon's coming. Right. But let's not forget the fact that this does maybe the headline ought to be this: me, Donald Trump's campaign manager, Donald Trump's campaign chairman, is going to jail for four years. So all this idea, right? Witch hunt. Robert Mueller hasn't accomplished anything. There's nothing to the whole investigation. It's all a Democrat. No, it's not. This is serious stuff. And again, this may be only half of the sentence that Paul Manafort gets. Uh, also, Donald Trump, so Donald Trump's campaign chairman is going to jail for four years. Um, in about a month, Donald Trump's personal lawyer is going to jail for three years, Michael Cohen, the fixer. Uh, who uh, now is in a little bit of trouble himself again over his testimony last week. I find this almost funny because what did he say in front of Congress when he testified in front of the House uh, Oversight Committee? Uh, I admit that I lied to you the last time I was here. 
Uh, but here today, I'm here to tell the truth. And one of the things he said last week was, I never sought and I never would have accepted a presidential pardon. I had no interest in it. I've never talked about it. No, I, I don't want to go there, period, boom. Well, it turns out he lied again. It looks like it in front of Congress. And I base that on his attorney, one of his attorneys, Landy Davis, who told NBC, I believe it was the other day, just a couple of days ago, that in fact, not Lanny, but a previous attorney of Michael Cohen's did approach the Trump administration and had discussions about the possibility of a pardon for Michael Cohen. You know, why would he go there, right? I mean, I mean, you, it would have been so easy to say, I had that conversation at one time and I realized that was not a good idea or whatever, sure, right? But sure. just to deny that he had any interest ever, ever in it was, unless he forgot, but this is doesn't look good. This is what we doesn't were saying good. about Michael Cohen yeah, last week, yeah. right? You can't he, totally trust him. Everybody gets all excited about all of this damning stuff that he said about Donald Trump, and, and I'm, sh- I'm certain that a lot of it is true. Uh, but he's also a snake. He's a snake just as bad as Donald Trump is a snake. Right. This yeah. is, he's not a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Not a good look. Um, and um, at the same time yesterday, uh, taking a little offensive here, Michael Cohen filed uh, yet another lawsuit against Donald Trump. I think this is the uh, 439th lawsuit that's been filed against Donald Trump this week, maybe. I don't know. But <laughs> he's certainly... He certainly is besieged by lawsuits. Uh, this is the latest, Michael Cohen, saying that once he started cooperating with Paul Manafort, Donald Trump shut off the spigot and didn't stop paying him his monthly retainer and that Donald Trump now owes him uh, $1.9 million in money that he did not pay Michael Cohen for the last, I don't know how many months. Guess what? Good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. This is certainly consistent with what we've heard from Donald Trump over the oh, years. Oh, totally. Totally. Just By stiffing way, people. No doubt he owes Michael Cohen this money. Sure. No doubt. I'm sure if you look at their original agreement, this is exactly what he owes him. I just say lots of luck getting that money out of the Trump organization. Yeah. Um, but uh, And somebody's going to be um, handling that lawsuit for him while he's in jail, I guess. Yeah. Um, other news that I'm sure uh, that you, you talked about, just uh, no particular order here. Uh, North Korea, boy, how's that turning out <laughs> after the last summit? Not only, we find out, did the last summit uh, accomplish nothing, flying halfway around the world and coming home with nothing, the part of Donald Trump, uh, the summit totally falling apart. Uh, but now it's been revealed that um, North Korea has embarked on, they're not only not shutting down sites, they are rebuilding and expanding uh, a test site, a nuclear test site. Um, We've picked up uh, satellite photos of that, and they are still in the process of building more nuclear weapons. So the idea that um, they may not have tested any missile, but the idea that Donald Trump with his a buddy-buddy relationship with Kim Jong-un has begun the process of reversing uh, the nuclear program or getting rid of North Korea's nuclear program is simply not true. They are more into it building up their nukes than they have ever been before. 
Uh, meanwhile, here on the uh, the home front, the House of Representatives yesterday passing a great big measure uh, on hate crimes. Four hundred and seven. The vote was 407 to 23. Let's just point out, by the way. Very lopsided vote. There were a couple of Republicans who voted no on this. Yes. Louis Gohmert being one of them. Mm -hmm. Saying it's too broad. Mm. Uh, A measure, uh, if you ask me, that was totally unnecessary, totally meaningless, and amounted to a big miscalculation on the part of House Democrats who walked right into a trap that had been set for them by Donald Trump and House Republicans and, to a large extent, by the media. Um, and, look, let me, uh, I first want to, uh, to admit that uh, this fresh, these freshman members of Congress, they're new, they're fresh, they're untested, they got to be careful. They got to learn that uh, everybody's watching for any little thing that they could say and misinterpreting any little thing that they say and trying to blow it up into a great big uh, to what it is not. Uh, but I think for Democrats to respond to every attempt on the Republicans or the media to try to find these little things and make a big deal of it and sow some division is a big mistake. Uh, and so yesterday they ended up with this resolution that. That ended that um, that I mean, boy, how brave do you have to be that condemned every kind of hate ever. If you hate gays or Latinos or women or blacks or Jews or Palestinians or Muslims or Native Americans or Christians or whatever, we condemn it. That's basically how meaningless the resolution was in its in its final form. Um, Speaker Pelosi insisted that uh, this was not directed at Congresswoman Elon Omar, although there were her remarks that, that that triggered this whole conversation, but that it was just directed at, at any form of hate. Attacks on Jewish people, anti-Semitic tropes, prejudicial accusations, uh, or any other form of hatred is deeply and unequivocally offensive and must be condemned wherever it is heard. At the same time, there were some members, uh, particularly with the, Cal- with the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass from California pointing out, I mean, how, again, readily the Democrats walked into this trap set by Republicans where Democrats have to stand up and pass this huge resolution, a big act of Congress, because one of their members said something which might, be, might have been interpreted uh, as anti-Semitic, although clearly it was not that the Democrats have, have, have almost forced into doing that, whereas you've had Steve King from Iowa who is saying such outrageous racist things for decades and never been, never been until recently he lost his committees, but he's still a member of Congress, uh, never been condemned by the Republicans. And then the hatred that spews from Donald Trump day in and day out, and Republicans just look the other way. Here's Karen Bass, Congresswoman from California. There has been a rise of hatred in so many different directions, and unfortunately, a lot of it has been emanating from the White House. And, and you know, and I, I, I think how the extent to how silly this gets came yesterday on The View. 
when Joy Behar made a statement basically saying, what, 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 why are Democrats doing this? Okay. I mean, one member of Congress said something which may not have been um, maybe as eloquently expressed as she could have. Yeah, you might not like it. You might not like it. And her it, point but... was, look, these Republicans that are acting so upset over Elon Omar's comments while they continue to prop up Donald, Donald Trump, Trump. Yeah, that's what Joy was saying. Absolutely right. hypocritical. Yeah, so then Meghan McCain, by the way, somebody still explained to me why Meghan McCain is on The View. I mean, I don't know why, but at any rate, she's there. And so she takes us to the extreme of, oh, but Uncle Joe Lieberman is not happy with this. I don't have family she's that is crying. Jewish, but... Joe Lieberman and Hadassah Lieberman are my family. Yeah. And I take the hate crimes rising in this country incredibly seriously. And I think what's happening in Europe is really scary. And I'm sorry if I'm getting emotional, but the idea that this is politicized, I'm really not. I was very nervous to talk about this on the show because I thought it would become politicized and it really shouldn't be. On both sides, it should be called out. Mm -hmm. And just because I don't technically have Jewish family that are blood related to me, it doesn't mean I don't take this as seriously. And it is very dangerous very dangerous, and I think we all collectively as Americans Let's, on I'll both tell you, sides, and what Ilhan Omar is saying... I'll tell you what's dangerous, Megan McCain. What's dangerous, and by the way, good for Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders got on this right away and and condemned... <laughs> he didn't condemn Ilhan Omar. He condemned the Democrats for being so silly as to spend so much time on this and making it a great big deal. And he was soon followed by Elizabeth Warren, and, uh, and Elizabeth, I just happened to have her statement in front of him. But again, Bernie was the first. He was out there. He saw this whole thing was caca, and he jumped on it. And he was followed by Elizabeth Warren and then Kamala Harris and then later Kirsten Gillibrand. Uh, good for them. All of but, them had the, the good and correct take on this. Yeah, who said we should not be bamboozled into going down this path. Uh, but again, I want to give Bernie credit because he was the first, but Elizabeth Warren had just happened to have it in front of me. She said, here's, here's the problem. The risk is, she said, branding criticism of Israel as automatically anti-Semitic has a chilling effect on our public discourse and makes it harder to achieve a peaceful solution between Israelis and Palestinians. Bernie basically said, I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said the same thing. It, it is not unpatriotic and is not anti-Semitic to criticize the right-wing policies of Benjamin Netanyahu. And that's what's at the heart of this thing, that it's the hardliners in, uh, in the, and the BB supporters, right, who poke any little criticism of Israel and immediately brand it as anti-Semitic, and, we've, and, and Democrats fell into that trap. So I got to salute Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, for speaking out and saying, let's not be, let's not be fooled in, in, into doing this. I think Good that, for them. I, you I, know, my advice to Democrats is, do your freaking job. Yeah, exactly. Do your job. Pass climate change legislation. Pass H.R. 1 today. Pass infrastructure. Get, do your freaking job and stop playing games that the Republicans and the media want you to play and and go through all these exercises. It's really amazing that on the national level, uh, all of the national Democrats that are running for yeah. president, I shouldn't say all of them, but, but a, right. a, a lot of the front runners, anyway, uh, were able to call this out for exactly what it is, right? It's it's insane that we're having to have this conversation, especially considering the background 
uh, of Donald Trump and what he's said recently. But like still at the House level, this is just what a waste of time. What a waste of a couple of days. Total waste. Total waste. And it feeds again. It just is more ammunition for the Republicans and for Donald Trump to say, oh, look at these Democrats. They're so divided. They can't even. No, just stay away from don't don't take the bait on the 2020 front. Man, I got to tell you, while I was gone. There was any news while I was gone. It was the fact that uh, we had more Democrats. This is unusual. We had more Democrats drop out this week than drop in. <laughs> Boy, that's changed. There are already 14 in, by the way. Uh, if that if that includes our friend Andrew Yang, who was here a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mary and Marianne Williamson, which is a total joke. But um, but this week we heard from Hillary Clinton. No, for sure, she's not going to run. We heard from Michael Bloomberg. No, for sure. He's not going to run because he says he's pretty sure Joe Biden is and there's not room for him and Joe Biden. Uh, We heard from Senator Jeff Merkley from Oregon. No, this is not going to run. And yesterday surprised me somewhat, um, surprised me a lot, actually. Sherrod Brown, Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio, great progressive, uh, was really out there on his listening tour, Dignity of Work tour. Uh, and uh, to his credit, he went around and just uh, decided field's too crowded. There's not enough of a lane for him, uh, and so he's not going to run. At the same time, uh, again, the New York Times, <laughs> how many times do we see these stories? But they say now it's 95% sure all the things are in place for uh, former Vice President Joe Biden to run and that he have intense plans to announce uh, the er, in early April. Uh, but until he does, he's not in. Right, exactly. Uh, it can change between now and early April. Right. You know, it's really interesting that if Biden gets in right now, I'm not so sure that he becomes the immediate front runner. You know, I mean, you look at the people that have really sucked up a lot of the oxygen in this race and... yeah. Yeah, there's I some think, superstars. Yeah, I think there's a risk in his waiting uh, as long as long as he is, uh, and if he if if he does get in, you know, I think it's going to turn out to almost be a primary between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Yeah, I can see that happening. You know, I'm not discounting Elizabeth Warren. She's had a great run, and certainly Kamala Harris has been very very impressive. But I think that they may be the Kind of the poll stars of the uh, it, of the uh, of the uh, of the Democratic primary, and I really think this is going to come down to whether or not people go back and look at Joe Biden's record versus the Joe Biden who is Obama's buddy, and we like him. Record, yeah. you know what I mean. And if it turns into that, I think Joe Biden's going to have some real problems. Right. So something else happened while I was gone, and that is. Tom Perez, the chairman of the DNC, says, okay, we're getting closer and closer to the plan for the uh, Democratic primary debates. There are going to be 12 of them, as we know. The first one is going to be in June, uh, and they're going to divide it up as to which networks hold which which debates. But one network is not going to be in line at all for any debate, and that is Fox News. Is that the right decision? That's just one of the questions we've got for our first guest today. Joe Strupp is a veteran journalist. He's got a great new book out called Killing Journalism. (laughs) Well, uh, do we even include Fox in the broad term of journalism these days? 
Uh, so let's take a quick break and come back and talk Fox News and other uh, good media questions here with uh, Joe Strupp, author of Killing Journalism. We'll be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. On a Friday, March 8, it is The Bill Press Show. Good to see you today. Good to be back with you. And uh, thanks again for joining us as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, joining you coast to coast on the radio and television and online. Brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters, the great men and women of our firefighting departments. You see them roaring by on the way to the fires uh, or emergencies. Uh, give them a little handshake, not a handshake, but a little wave and a salute, and thank them for their great work in protecting American families every day. Uh, under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger, and I, uh, I saw this morning that um, Joe Biden, uh, who has not yet jumped in, uh, but the firefighters have indicated that if he does, Joe Biden is their candidate, and they will be uh, there in his corner, just waiting to for, to see if he when he finally makes his move. Uh, their website, by the way, so check it out is iaff.org. Join me in welcoming uh, to the program a veteran journalist himself who has uh, written his new book about the state of uh, the media today, uh, called "Killing Journalism." Uh, which might lead you to believe that there are some problems with the media today. And indeed, there are. Challenge maybe as never before. Joe Strupp joins us. Hey, Joe, it's great to see you. Great to see you. I appreciate it, sir. Hey, thanks for coming in so much. Uh, Before we jump into this, Mm -hmm. just a quick look at our first half hour and some of the comments we've received. We'd like to give our viewers a chance to off. Yes, indeed. Lots of comments out there. We're tweeting at BP Show, at BP Show. Let's just... Jump into it. Uh, okay, so first of all, let me just point out, I don't have time to read all of these, but a lot of you were very upset about Paul Manafort's sentence. Uh, uh, and you should be. You should yeah, be. It's the completely joke. crazy. It's completely crazy. You could get 10 years for smoking a joint, yeah. right? You get four years for right. defrauding the government. Exactly. Also, uh, KG uh, chiming in, we played the clip of Meghan McCain crying about the Elon Omar statements. Uh, KG says, someone explain to me why Meghan McCain exists as a personality for us to listen to. Thank and, you. And also says... Demo- I have the same question. Yeah, agree. Uh, also says, Democrats just cannot wait to wet their pants and then cry about it. <laughs> Also true. Yes. Uh, On the 2020 race, uh, George says, count me in as one of the people who will be digging up all of the Joe Biden crap if he throws his, quote, Mm. corporate ass into the ring. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, Our people are tough. Yeah, they're a tough crowd today, man. And if you have a comment on any topic at any time, just find us on Twitter at BP Show. Okay. Uh, again, Joe Strump, our guest, the book is Killing Journalism, available wherever you buy your books, hopefully at your local independent bookstore. So, Joe, you know, I've been around, you and I have been at this business for a long mm. time, right? I'll tell you how long I've been in journalism. I've been in journalism long enough that I remember when they used to have daily press briefings at the White House. It wasn't that long ago, right? It seems yeah. like it was, right? But it wasn't. I mean, that's how that's how things far to me things have sunk, right? I saw Sarah Huckabee saying it was at the Gridiron Dinner last Saturday, and I said, "Yeah, Winston." There was no briefing at all in February. There was one in January. So, is killing journalism? Do we attribute it all to Donald Trump? No, and as you see, the total the title is "How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump." Are uh, destroying news, but how we can save it. So it's not a complete lost oh, cause. Although oh, okay. I am, I am getting more cynical as the <laughs> days go by. And what happened was, as 
You said, I've been a reporter for 30 years. The last 18 or so in media, mostly, uh, first at Editor and Publisher Magazine, which covered the newspaper mm-hmm. business, and then at Media Matters for America, yeah. uh, which, of course, is a great uh, oh, political no. we, watchdog, media watchdog. We, we uh, all lean group. on and depend on Media Matters for America. And yeah. I did a lot of uh, research there that led me to this book. And what I originally wanted to find out, and I think the book includes, is information about what's really wrong with news that I kept hearing from people over and over as you do that we're all liberal left-wing slanted communists which I don't think is true I think there's obviously some slanted coverage on both sides but I think most reporters want to get out and dig up stories yeah but as I was reviewing that I kept coming up with Trump who was in office for a year before I really started the book and then during my writing last year it just got worse him calling us the enemy of the people him saying uh, everything's fake news fake media, and the impact was growing, not only in people who would believe him when his history of untruths is probably greater than any politician at his level, but also it would sway his followers and others to distrust the media. And that's a form of killing journalism because all we have is credibility along with all the other things like resources being cut and less money and splintered audience. But I think Trump has a dangerous impact because of that opinion that people have now of a lot of news that it's not real, that it's fake, and it's just a baseless claim on his part, and things like not having press briefings, as you and I were discussing earlier, and not really giving the press access (laughs) in a way that can help them understand things versus him just saying, well, there's no collusion, this is a witch hunt, all his usual claims that really have no basis, at least at this point, and that's dangerous in several ways. Right. And there's also the risk, which we've seen, uh, that his comments about uh, fake news, uh, naming reporters by name, yes. naming networks by name, uh, can lead to some people deciding they're going to take matters into their own hands. We saw this Coast Guard guy who put out a list of people he wanted to target, building up an arsenal, and there were members of the media that he felt. Right, and just harassment. I mean, I was in... And, right. I was out in the Midwest actually uh, researching another book I'm doing on a murder. Uh, that occurred in my family years ago before my time, which is another story. Yeah. But I was in uh, in a store talking to someone, and uh, I was asking about the town. It was Rapid City, South Dakota, um, where my grandmother's from, and that's the relation to this story. But I was talking to someone just about how, he, how Rapid City was, and he said, oh, you're not from here. I said, no, I'm from New Jersey. Um, and he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm researching a book. And he mm-hmm. said, oh, are you a, a, an author? I said, I'm a reporter. And he said, oh, reporter. Oh. Oh. And he literally walked away from me and didn't want to talk to me. He said, oh, you're a reporter. You're all liars. And why do you say that? Oh, you know what you do to Trump and et cetera. And just some random person. And people are getting more reaction than that from from folks in the uh, folks in the, in the right sphere right. who are immediately want to distrust reporters and even take action, you know. But one one of the the so we have seen the denigration, if you will, uh, particularly on the part of Donald Trump and his people around him and Republicans in Congress toward the media. That's a dark side. The bright side that I see, I want to see if you agree, is that um, maybe spurred by Donald Trump, um, that I think we see the best investigative journalism today that we've seen maybe since Watergate. We've seen a lot of great, yes. On the higher end, New York Times, platforms. Washington Post, New York Times Post, a lot of uh, the Atlantic has done yeah, some great Atlantic, work. Right, um, several other news outlets are are really putting investing. I know the Post. I think added a bunch of new White House correspondents yeah. when yeah. 
Trump came in and the Times and, and the Post and others have seen circulation increases, although Trump would like you to think they're the failing New York Times, hardly. He keeps calling them that, yes. but they're 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 bigger than ever. But right? it is a double-edged sword because you're ever. getting that investigation, you're getting that <clears throat> scrutiny, great <clears throat> stories are being uncovered, not only in the Trump uh, federal White House uh, world, but in things like the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. there was a lot mm -hmm. of great uh, investigation yeah. there that brought out a lot of things. And now, even in the latest couple, last couple of weeks, with all the investigations related to the Russian probe and Trump, new things are coming out, and so far being proven correct. So it does have that double edge. But on the other hand, you have reporters being harassed, physically yeah. assaulted. The Capital Gazette tragedy, uh, maybe not directly linked to Trump, but it's still linked to that era. That sure. atmosphere that, you know what, it's okay to go after reporters, not only verbally, but physically, and try to intimidate them. And that's yeah. not right, because we're a part of democracy as much as any profession, probably more than most professions. We mentioned uh, the Post, uh, the Atlantic Magazine, but the Post and the Daily and the New York Times, the Daily, Daily Papers, they're, they're the rare exception, aren't they, when you look at what has happened to Print journalism, yes. daily papers in this country. Now, you've been traveling around the country. What have you seen? I mean, I just came back from L.A. It was three days in L.A. The Los Angeles Times, which was one of the great papers yeah. in the nation at one time, just sadly, no longer. It's not doing what it used to. It's still doing good work. But years ago, they started to dismantle their foreign bureaus. I mean, they had more foreign bureaus than anyone. Mm -hmm. That was one of their great strengths. And about 10 years or so, it was just the cutbacks. This paper was sold to Tribune which has then sold it again and cutbacks and reductions in staff and in, in areas where they used to really highlight great journalism. They're still doing some, but not as they used right. to. And in the, lo the lower level you go, you go to the regional papers, you go to local papers, you have what you know they're called news deserts, where there's really no local coverage. There's no local TV, radio, some places not even a weekly paper to tell you what the school board's doing, what the township or city council's mm -hmm. doing, and mm -hmm. that's where your taxes go. That's the most yeah. tangible thing for most readers is their local news, their regional news. It's not getting covered, number one, because they don't have the staff. Number two, because there's such a quick grab for audience that if something's mildly uh, controversial or mildly complicated, people don't want to read it because they're used to getting quick things on their cell phone or on the, on the Internet, and news outlets can't really put the time in so that news that really affects you maybe more than what's going on in Washington is getting less coverage. I mean, I wonder today what percentage of Americans get a daily paper delivered to their door. I mean, a, a print like, like yeah. this now. I do. <laughs> I do. I'm one of the few, but, but you and I are of, a, of an older generation. And not, not only, you know, so many cities that had... Um, like I remember San Francisco, morning paper and an afternoon yeah. paper. Now there's, if, at best, only one paper. And then what percentage of the population, a diminishing percent of the population, get an actual paper delivered to their door? Yeah, and I was in San Francisco in the 90s. I know when you were in California, um, the San Francisco Examiner was a real afternoon paper. Absolutely. The Chronicle yeah. was a real beefy morning paper. By the way, the paper. LA Examiner was a good yeah. afternoon paper. Yeah. And but San Francisco also had two great alternative papers, the SF Weekly, the Bay Guardian, they're mm -hmm. gone. Now, there is online version of news that's good. You can still go online and get Absolutely. a lot of news. But how many people can go online? How many middle-income, lower-income people can get to a computer, can get to a cell phone and scroll and, and see the web-based story? They don't have it. Mm -hmm. If they don't have print, <clears throat> excuse me, Yeah, they're lost, especially when a lot of newspapers are only printing several days a week. The Times-Picayune in New Orleans cut back. I believe the D 
Detroit Free Press cut back to only a few days a week. If you don't have access to a computer or some web source, and a lot of people who are among the poor and low-income folk, they don't, and they're affected by the news as much or if more than anyone. That's another detriment. Just before you walked into the studio this morning, <clears throat> uh, Donald J. Trump tweeted, uh -huh. quote, oh, damn, it just went away. Um, Thank you, Fox and Friends. Great show. <laughs> That's No surprise there. No surprise. That was his tweet this morning. Uh, so, again, we, we had a, the, as we've said, probably the most powerful person on the planet today is the executive producer of Fox and Friends because he or she sets the agenda for the Trump administration every morning yeah. with Donald Trump watching this show, right? And this comes out of the great uh, New Yorker piece this week by Jane Mayer, which I'm sure you were talking about, in which she connected Fox and Trump even more closely than had been previously known. And that's basically what happens. They'll put right. out something, he'll watch, he'll either tweet about it or seek to put it into some kind of policy, or in his case, uh, what he passes for a policy. And that's very dangerous because Fox, and we wrote about it at Media Matters, you've written about it, has a great credibility problem and a great lack of in-depth reporting on itself. The, uh, the, 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 the photo, or not the photo, the drawing that accompanies Jane Mayer's piece in the uh, New Yorker this, this week we thought when Donald Trump moved into the White House that there would be the big Trump sign on top of the White House. She's got the that hasn't happened. She's got the White House with a big Fox sign on top of it, which sort of sums it up. So, did uh, Chairman Tom Perez make the right decision in saying, of all the Democratic debates, not one of them is going to be on Fox? I don't know. I heard some good commentary about discussion about that. I think on your show and some others the other day. It would be interesting to have a, a Democratic debate on Fox. And I think that someone was, they were mentioning people like Shep Smith and Brett Baer might give it a fair shake. I think, I don't think it would hurt. Do you? I don't know. I'm not, I'm a news guy more than a political guy. Well, I think the better, uh, I think the best of all is Chris Wallace. Yeah, you know, he'd be great. Chris, I think he'd be fair. The problem is um, you can't dictate to the network who they put up as their anchor to ask the questions. So as good as Chris Wallace would be, um, what have they put up? Sean Hannity. I think Lou Dobbs. I think that would get a lot of a lot of react though, wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, you four can't... years ago when they had Megyn Kelly, and of course we know what happened with her at the debate. That wasn't basically her fault. Uh, she seemed to bring up good, fair-minded questions. Although that New Yorker piece brought up some background on how that went about, and there were actually claims that yeah. Trump knew about that big question about him, you know, calling women names. But I think they, it would have to have a fair-minded uh, moderator but again, to work. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I see the other side, but I, I think uh, I think Perez, I, I salute Perez for, for uh, basically I think his point is let's just accept the fact Fox is a propaganda network, not a news yeah. network. And I don't think it hurts anything to not do it on Fox. I think it would be an interesting approach. But on the other hand, you would not know how Fox might use it to their advantage to well, just make we, the candidates yeah. look bad, and they come out kind of damaged rather than with some real insight. I think we do know that's what they would do, right? Yeah, so, and so I think Perez, and Tom Perez, just said we're not going to, we're not going to take that chance. So you said that that there is a positive side to the, to your book, meaning not just killing journalism, but how we can. Uh, despite all the challenges today, make it better? Well, I think, like you were saying, there's a lot of great investigative and, yeah. and real journalism going on that the Trump White House has boosted a lot of the real coverage. Last year's Pulitzer Prizes, I'm a big Pulitzer fan. 
because I used to cover them every year. Uh, had some great Trump-related reporting. I'm sure this year's will have it as well. They come out, I believe, in April now. And I think there's a lot of that going on. The one thing I do look at We've in the We've had book, uh, David Farenthold on the show from the Washington Post. He's a brilliant legend. reporter. He's yeah. br- brilliant and even better work. Yeah. yeah. And they're doing a lot of great work. Paul Fari over there does great stuff for them. The New York Times has shown them themselves not only with Trump, but with the Me Too movement and a lot of, and still international reporting too. But one of the things I look at in the book is nonprofit news. That's kind of the last chapter. Um, there's plenty of nonprofit outlets that have sprung up in the last 15 years. Uh, the Institute for Nonprofit News has almost 200 members. Among them is ProPublica.org, of course. They've done a lot of great work with the mm-hmm. New York Times, with other news outlets. They have won some Pulitzers. Some other groups like the Center for Investigative Reporting out in California, the New England Center for Investigative Reporting, the Marshall Projects in New York led by Bill uh, Keller, who was a former New York Times editor. Mm-hmm. The Lens is a group in New Orleans that I got to know. Whoa. And Texas Tribune huh. doing some yeah, great work. Yeah, Texas Tribune yeah. is doing really good stuff. So there's, I think, the, the, I, if it were up to me, nonprofit would be the model for everyone. Of course, that's not going to happen. But if we utilize that idea where they have donations and contr- contributions, and you have to keep an eye on who's contributing and not look at a way where they're getting controlled. So far, it doesn't seem like that's happening. It seems like it's pretty fair-minded work. Um, I think that would be well done. Of course, the biggest news outlet in the world is nonprofit, the Associated Press. They're technically a news cooperative, which means everything they make goes back into the business. I have lots of great uh, comments from Gary Pruitt, their CEO, who used to run McClatchy newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has some great insight about why they stay nonprofit cooperative, because they, if they went for you know a public offering or something or went out on a stock sell, uh, their credibility and demand for profits would really reduce their ability. So they've proven that the nonprofit world exists. Could AP start up today? Probably not. But it does a great job, and it shows that that's an area that could really help boost it. But I think the biggest thing It's nice be, to know that they've survived. Yes. And th- I think, and it's because of doing good work. But I think another thing that's going to be needed is people demanding credible news, not falling for the false news, the Fox Related. There's so many other websites that you know, Infowars, World Net Daily, even the Daily Caller has really slipped in a lot of its work, even though it tries to do a conservative bent. Um, if people don't fall for the non-credible news, and there are versions on the left, I'm sure, not as many. Um, at Media Matters, people used to say, why don't you keep an eye on the left-wing slanted coverage? I said, well, there's really not that much of it. Most, Even MSNBC doesn't get incorrect stories as much as somebody like Fox or Daily Caller. Plus, there are plenty of people. I remember the days before Media Matters. There were plenty of right-wing media attack groups, right, looking nothing at at nothing but, um, well, even mainstream media uh, from from a Republican right-wing perspective, right. That, yeah, again, though, those are all slanted attack, or a lot of them. Yeah, slanted, yeah. So that's what I would say. Right-wing because... watchdogs, right? There, there were plenty of them. There was no left-wing watchdog or, or liberal or progressive watch until Media Matters came along. But I would right? also argue that some of the right-wing ones, particularly Media Research Center, yeah. which we have found so what many his name? inaccuracies. Um, Brett, uh, Brett, Brett Bozell. Brett Bozell. Brett Bozell, right. who used to get into arguments with me at oh. CPAC because I would challenge comments that oh. weren't factual. I think a lot of them have a good idea, but they don't follow the accuracy. One of the things about Media Matters I loved is that they really were s- skeptical, checking facts, accuracy-minded, more than any newsroom I ever worked in. I would come up with story ideas. If they didn't fly, they didn't get used. That was mm-hmm. it. 
or things would lo- we'd look into things if they weren't news, we wouldn't do them. We'd find something that was. What do you? What do you? As someone who's been in journalism as long as you have, you know, what what what's your take on the the fact that so many people get their news right here, yeah. right, and um, you know, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Facebook, or whatever it is, right? And and there's like no quality control over it whatsoever. No, it's really the Wild West. And yeah, yeah. I think I always look at the so internet. So how do you sort it out? I mean, you know, we've seen stories can start, somebody can put something yeah. up, and then suddenly it gets goes viral, gets a life of its own, and then the mainstream media is talking about it, and it's based on nothing. Yeah, and I have several chapters in the book related to that. Um, I always look at the internet as a necessary evil. I think it helps in many ways. I did a lot of research on the internet, as people do. It's great. Sure, Everything's sure. at your fingertips. Promoting this book and other things is done well on the internet. But yeah, it's, it, you can put up a website and put whatever you want on it, and that gives it instant credibility because it's on the same uh, media platform as the New York Times or CNN. Right, right. People look at them the same because you're seeing them at the same level. That's where people have to be careful. I also teach two classes. Uh, I'm an adjunct at two colleges up in the New York area, and I teach media ethics. Mm. And I always ask my students, first day, where do you get your news? And how many of them say Twitter? And I say, well, what does that mean? Are you getting the Twitter feed from the New York Times or the LA Times or your friend's Twitter feed where they pass on some rumor, and that's what you believe? So it takes an educated news consumer, but yeah, it takes more of a watchdog approach and that's very difficult now. There's more of it how, than there used to how be. How many of them are watching the evening news? Uh, very few. <laughs> but some still get a print paper. Uh, about half live at home, half live in the dorms. And uh, they get some access to it. I don't mind people getting news online or even through Twitter if it's a valid, credible source. And we know many of them are not. I find it still stunning are. that at, at this day and age, um, with all that's going on, that the networks give... Every one of them, half an hour. Yeah, that's all they would spare. Half an hour to the news for the, for the evening news, and as you know, of that thirty minute newscast, fifteen minutes maybe is solid news. Yeah. Well, that's also because of where we are. People are watching and getting news all day. By nighttime, many people already have it, so they're really not. You know, they, mm-hmm. it's an older audience, right? Which is getting older. And when will it be that the network news shows are not even there? You know, they started off as a 15-minute broadcast by <laughs> Douglas Edwards in the late early 60s. It's going to end as a five-minute broadcast. But if there's a big story, that's another thing I look at in the book is breaking news, over coverage of things. They're on one story all day. Oh, God. Even MSNBC, which I like, it's Trump all day long, which is good that they're covering Trump and aggressively. But if it's hour after hour of just Trump and no real news about it, and, and to the exclusion of other things, that can be tricky. Spending too much time on Donald Trump's tweets? I think when you're the president, you're the president. You know, you're, whatever you do is news simply because of who you are. Maybe giving every tweet more uh, focus than it deserves. I don't know how you disseminate that. We are in a presidency in a time that, like no other, not only because we have a president who lies so much and who is on social media so much, but because we do have social media. If we had social media... Uh, in the early 70s, would Richard Nixon have been tweeting about Watergate or someone on his behalf? Probably. Would it have been as uh, mm-hmm. covered and exposed the way it was? Would leaks have stopped Woodward and Bernstein and others? Or would they have helped? I right. really don't know. It's it's changing times. We have a different kind of president, a different I, kind of media. 
I don't know what the answer is. And we have a president who is a master at at media manipulation and using the media. And And I also, you know, take a lot of news to task in the book for early on in the presidency or the presidential campaign of Trump, aiding and abetting him by putting his rallies on without any filter. And then uh, friends uh, at Scarborough, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, were his buddies for a long time. And then... They turned on him. Let me interrupt you just because I want to plug the book again yes. before our time runs out. The book is great book, Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump Are Destroying News and How We Can Save It. Very, very important. Joe Strupp, the author. Uh, check it out. And, Joe, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you always for having me. Congressman Dan Kildee joining us next. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Michael Cohen sues Donald Trump for $1.9 million in (laughs) unpaid bills. Yeah, good luck with that, Michael. (laughs) He's got a record. He's got a a, a reputation for not paying his bills. That's like $35,000 a month for how long? A long time. A A long long time. time. (laughs) Yeah, how about it? Uh, It's the Bill Press Show on a Friday, Friday, March 8th. Great to see you today. And thank you for joining us as we come to you live, as always, from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, our studio on Capitol Hill, with all the news of the day on every front, uh, whether it's a Paul Manafort's uh, sentence, sentencing yesterday, a stunningly lenient sentence he received, uh, the latest on uh, HR1, big vote today in the United States Congress, uh, a vote yesterday on the big anti-hate resolution, uh, and lots of other news of the day. We'll bring it to you with the help to this half hour of our good friend from uh, Flint, Michigan, Michigan's 5th Congressional District, Congressman Dan Kildee. Congressman, it's always good to see you. Good to be back. What are you doing working today on a Friday? Well, you know, it's the people's work. All know, right. It, it, Friday is the people's day. We want to get our money's, our that's dollar's well, worth out of this. Right. Yeah. Let's not get carried away now. <laughs> yeah. Look, hey, Bill, just because you don't work on Fridays usually doesn't mean that the members of Congress don't. It's... In Manafort, he got the same sentence we got, four years of pure hell. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Best line of the day. Excellent. Uh, okay. Uh, we're just getting started here, so uh, get ready to send your comments on Twitter at BP Show uh, with a good congressman. We'll jump into the news of the day. But first, got to give Peter this a shot. is the Full Court Press. Ah, uh, yes. Just a couple of other stories making news. 
Let's go just outside of Beijing because there is a giant winter festival called the Harbin Ice and Snow World that where people show up and they make ice sculptures. It's a big, big event that happens every year. Where is this? In, just outside of uh, uh, Beijing in China. Oh. Except here's the problem. Northern China is experiencing some very, very high temperatures this week. Oh. So if you're having ice sculptures... They don't last long. They don't last long. <laughs> now, normally, they say this lasts about 10 days. People show up, they carve the sculptures, and then they stay up for people to come and see them. They're magnificent. Uh, some of the photos that I've seen of the ones yeah. that are there. But the problem is they're all gone now. They're all gone now because of the uh, don't higher say temperatures. It. Don't say climate change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, climate change is not, not real. Right, anymore. Uh, earlier this week, we talked about how more and more places are going cashless. We are living in a yes. cashless society, yeah. right? Uh, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta just announced that they were not going to be taking cash anywhere. Well, one place where you can still use cash, Philadelphia. Yesterday, they made a new law. They have said that they are banning cashless stores. So if you want to show up and you want to operate a business in the city of Philadelphia, you must accept cash. Interesting I mean, idea. I see that. A lot of people don't have credit cards and yeah. don't, or you can't get one or, or just don't, you know, don't use them. I think it's a matter so. of time before we're all just, we were joking that, you know, everyone's going to have a chip in their hand that they just oh, pay right. for everything with, right? It's just a matter of time before we get there. But sure, yeah, people still do use cash. I can't remember the last time I used cash. But I remember when you had to have like maybe 10 bucks or 15 bucks before you could use a credit card. Oh, yeah. Now oh, yeah, I see people... That's long gone, man. That's long gone. Yeah, that's true. I always say that the most expensive cup of coffee I bought was about $36 when I was younger because I bought a $2 cup of coffee on a debit card and then the overdraft fees that I had to pay when I didn't have the money for it. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of it. But it's interesting. I mean, I, I still carry cash in my pocket. Uh, a lot of people do. And so Philadelphia is saying, you know, if you if, if you have cash in your pocket and you want to use it, you should be allowed to use it. So if you're going to get a Philly cheesesteak, here yeah. you go. Don't use your debit card. No, don't use your debit card. Got to have cash. This is the Bill Press Show. Paul Manafort, 47 months. Yeah, they thought he might get nine, 19 to 25 years. People have gotten more than 47 months for smoking a joint. Um, and uh, that's... But still, he might get a presidential pardon. Anyhow, stunningly light sentence for Paul Manafort yesterday. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? It is the Bill Press Show on this Friday, March 8th. So good to see you today. Great to be back with you. And again, a big thanks to uh, Peter Ogburn and to Sabrina Siddiqui and to Chris Liu for filling in while I was gone on a little a quick business trip out to uh, Los Angeles. Good to be back. Uh, great to, uh, to visit Los Angeles and uh, uh, spend some time at the great L.A. City Library, one of the great libraries of the world, uh, rebuilt. 25 years ago after the big fire uh, in uh, uh, in Los Angeles at the library there. 
Uh, but I'm back with all of you and with our good friend Congressman Dan Kildee from Michigan's 5th Congressional District joining us before he uh, heads off to a long day of work here representing us at the in, in the United States Congress. That's it's always good. good to see you, Congressman. Good to be back. Yeah, and you had the best line of all in Paul Manafort's sentence. <laughs> he, yeah. got, he got the same sentence we got, four years of pure hell. Four years of pure hell. <laughs> it's amazing after everything that he's been found guilty of, like everything they yes. charged him with, right? I don't it's, know how it, many counts. And and the prosecutor was asking nineteen to twenty five years. Yeah, four. I don't know. I don't know what the justification was, but it certainly sends a bit of a message that it was a light tap. Yeah, you know. Yeah, which I, I generally stay out of the commentary on pr- uh, criminal prosecutions, at least until they're completely finished. But this one's kind of hard to ignore, right? You know, the, the, this this is a part of I think a really broad conspiracy to undermine the basic tenets of our democracy and the idea that that would be treated as a relatively minor crime um, frightens me a bit. Many, many attorneys spoke out yesterday. I saw one this morning who said that yesterday he, he had represent, just represented in, I think, New York Superior Court um, a, a guy who stole $100 in quarters from a, the laundry room in some residential building, and he got 36 to 72 months. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it the the um, the comparisons. That's where we really get worried because what does it say? Of course, it you know it says a lot about white collar crime. It also says about crime that is you know in, in this way political in nature. People are so dismissive of it, and I think partly because they assume that everyone involved in this business is shady. It's not true. It's right. not true. No. You know, um, the, the other. Um, well, the big vote today, right, finally, yeah. on H.R. 1. H.R. HR 1. HR 1, the name indicates it's the first piece of legislation on the part of the new Democratic Congress. Right. Uh, what uh, Speaker Pelosi said is her, her, her first priority. Right. Uh, encompasses a lot of stuff, right? It's a Tell pretty us. wide-ranging piece of legislation. Reform all, legislation. Reform legislation all about trying to bring integrity back to our political system requires significantly greater transparency in money and politics, uh, deals with lots of the conflicts that we see, would require a presidential candidate, for example, uh, to reveal their tax returns. Yeah, by then, the way, right? Yeah, yeah, by the way. And then goes down another yeah. important path by ensuring access to the ballot, basically making it a fundamental right that people should not have access to voting interfered with in any way, uh, requires... Significant reforms for voter registration, significant reforms for redistricting. It is a big step forward. There's a lot of, there are a lot of moving parts to it, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's a pretty strong statement that if we fix our political system, our ability to deal with all the other big problems that we have becomes much easier. If we minimize the interference of big corporate dollars, uh, we will have a straighter path to dealing with uh, a whole set of initiatives, environment, health for, for kids, education, all of that sometimes is made more difficult because of the incredible influence of money. So Mitch McConnell basically says it's all a charade and doesn't stand a prayer of a chance in the Senate. Well, you know, it may be under the current uh, leadership of the Senate, but one of the things that, that the way we legislate in the House can do is point out what Mitch McConnell is willing to stop. When the Republicans were in control of the House, Mitch was protected because they had this sort of 
unwritten deal with one another. They wouldn't pass anything that the other wouldn't pass, mm-hmm. that the other wouldn't take up. Now we're going to have legislation that has passed the House of Representatives, sent over the Senate, and Mitch has to make the decision and defend the choice to not put this bill on the floor of the Senate. And he's going to have to have his members explain that when they go home and ask for another six-year term. So, you know, elections come every two years. There's another one in 2020. Mitch McConnell may end up being the minority leader of the Senate in 2021 if he doesn't get it. So, in other words, the goal of the Democrats uh, will be to uh, rack up as many legislative victories on, on issues that are important to the American people, whether Mitch McConnell gives them a shake or not. For sure. And, you know, obviously we operate on the assumption that public pressure could ultimately lead to them having to take up some of these reforms. But if it doesn't, uh, we don't want to, basically what we don't want to do is determine that we're only going to do our job to the extent that Mitch McConnell is willing to do his. We can't precondition what we do based on his failure to uphold his oath. Right. Uh, And one case of something that got through the House and nobody expected, at least I didn't, to get through the Senate, but the rules require Mitch McConnell to have a vote, is this emergency declaration. Right, right. It's a privileged resolution, and it does require the Senate to take it up within a fixed number of days of House passage. Right. So and so they'll vote on it, and it looks like it will pass. It, it may not pass with a veto-proof vote. It certainly won't have a veto-proof vote in the House. So the president's signature initiative that he campaigned on and that he that he has talked about almost incessantly from the time he launched his campaign. If it becomes law, it will, of course, be challenged mm-hmm. in the courts. So we're not going to just go to sleep on this thing. But it will have had to overcome a court challenge and a veto override effort in order to become law. Right. As we've talked several times on the show, the, the, uh, you need Democrats will need four Republicans uh, in order to pass it through the Senate. Uh, they've got so far on the record Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Tom Tillis, and uh, Rand, Rand, Rand Paul. Paul. Yeah. Uh, there are other Republicans, and here, uh, for example, is uh, Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa, uh, former chair of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, um, who has not said publicly yet, I'll vote against it. But he and Lamar Alexander and several others have said they don't like this emergency declaration because it's an end run around Congress, basically. Right. Uh, here's Senator Grassley. The president has needlessly caused himself a political and legal problem that isn't necessary. <laughs> so he said, yeah, why did you do this, right? Well, the thing is, you know, we went through two months of hard, uh, you know, struggle to come up with a compromise resolution. The president shut the government down for 35 days in the name of building his wall. Democrats and Republicans, over the objection of many, came to an agreement, uh, an agreement that a lot of us didn't like. Yeah. You know, there are elements of that I didn't like. I voted for it because my thought is, you know, I'm sent here to try to fight this, these battles out and make as much progress as we can and learn, you know, live to fight another day. It's the whole system uh, that we have all, all agreed to. And the president says, well, okay, thanks, and that's not enough, and I'm just going to take whatever I need by fiat, um, you know, this is not the way our system is designed. And I think the, the, the thing that's troubling to me is how many Republicans in the House folded like a cheap suit uh, when presidential authority clearly has been 
uh, ex- you know, ex- exceeds its constitutional um, mm-hmm. bounds, and they just don't seem to to be too concerned about it. Right. They have essentially handed themselves over to him. Right. No, I was surprised that uh, that uh, the minority leader uh, Kevin McCarthy. I mean, you're right. Th- this is something. If Barack Obama had tried to do that, oh God, oh, uh, they would have been citing the Constitution. Oh, there, there's yeah. no question about where they would have gone with it. It may be where we have to go at some point in mm-hmm. the not too distant future. I mean, there may be an impeachment, but they they would have had him uh, impeached by now for sure. Okay. All right, so let's talk about a vote yesterday, Congressman. Um, 407 to 23 was the final vote on the um, broadly drawn, encompassing all kinds of hate resolution. Right. Uh, am I to assume that you're one of the 407? I am. Okay. An inelegant solution to a, a thorny set of problems. Why do Democrats go through this? Feel compelled to go through this whole m- motion was I mean pangs of conscience, which apparently have not infected the Republican side. And, and you know, I don't, I'm not trying to imply that this was handled in pre- the precise fashion that it should have been, but I do think a little a little step back it helps. You know, we we have had some members say things that are reprehensible, and I don't think there's any two ways about it. We can talk about degree, we can talk about intent, but these are painful words. It took us a few days to figure out how we were going to handle it. And we came to a resolution that, that was a little broad, but you know what? We, we came to a resolution. We dealt with it. The thing that troubles me is to be lectured by Republicans about how we handled this. When it took us three days to come up with something that, again, imperfect for sure. When for 16 years, they sat and watched and silently cheered as their xenophobic white nationalist member, Steve King, spewed forth all sorts of hate. And finally, after 16 long years, and after losing the house, nearly yeah, after losing the house, they finally yeah. said, "Well, I guess we have to say something about Steve King." So, I'll take whatever shots people want to throw at us for not handling this in the right way and, and having a little bit of difficulty figuring out how to, over the course of a few days, answer these the use of these these old tropes, which I think is is a dangerous thing. But I'm not taking any lecture from the Republicans on this one. Well, how about two years of nonstop spewing of hate from Donald Trump? Oh, my God. You know. And w- where Republicans have said nothing. No, at not all. a word. You know, he goes to Charlottesville where someone's killed. Uh, and, and there are marchers saying the Jews will not replace us. Dead silence. When Donald Trump says that they are good people. Fine people, dead silence from the Republicans. So, look, this was not a good week in that way. I'm glad we got this thing in the rearview mirror. I hope it stays there. But I'm not taking any any lecture from Republicans on this one. The, the other danger, and I thought that um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Kirsten Gillibrand all made the point yesterday. In fact. Um, Read again what uh, this. I just happen to have this Elizabeth Warren thing. Says that the risk here is 
that branding criticism of Israel as automatically anti-Semitic has a chilling effect on our public discourse and makes it harder to achieve a peaceful solution between Israelis and Palestinians. I mean, you've got to admit, that's, that's been going on for a long, yeah. long time. If you say anything critical about Bibi Netanyahu right. and his extreme right-wing policies, right, some people just try to dismiss you as obviously you're anti-Semitic. Right, and I think some of this gets conflated because some of the of those who have been uh, offended by what uh, Ilhan, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar has said maybe fellow, react. Fellow congressperson from Michigan? From, from Minnesota. She's Minnesota. Minnesota, that's Rashida right. Tlaib, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Tlaib. Yes, yeah. Rashida Tlaib, from Michigan, also a Muslim. But I think the problem is that this is how it gets complicated and why it was a little bit of an indelicate uh, solution that we came up with. Um, because I think the core message that it ought to be okay to criticize anyone on any policy, domestic or foreign, is is important. We have to be able to do that. We have to be able to criticize U.S. policy toward Israel. What we where we get into trouble is either intentionally or inadvertently using old tropes. And I don't know that it was intentional on her part. I can't say because I can't look into her heart. But it it it, it was hurtful language. And I think we've got to figure out a way to have this conversation and not throw the baby out with the bathwater, to be able to have an honest conversation about U.S. policy toward Israel, but not get drawn into these uh, hurtful words. I do think to a certain extent, though, um, it's not just that Congresswoman Omar may have been uh, inartful in her use of language. She's been baited into some of this by a Republican member of the House who tweets at her on a regular basis and engages her in these uh, in these back and forth you know sort of tweet storms and I think she needs to be aware that that's what's going on and not fall victim to it and I think people just need to understand that Lee Zeldin from New York is engaging her on this and mm-hmm. they know that it's a weakness and they know that we have a hard time dealing with it because these are hard issues I mean these are hard things to handle right yeah um, I want to ask you about 2020, because this week, uh, and I'm just curious, as a Democratic member of Congress, I'm sure you hear from a lot of people now that are looking at 2020, uh, and uh, some of them trying to maybe to lure you into their camp. But So this week was a, an unusual week in that we heard more people dropping out than dropping in, yeah. right? Yeah. So Hillary's not going to run. Jeff Murphy's not going to run. Sherrod Brown's not going to run. Blanco Bloomberg's not going to run. And then we hear that, yeah, but Joe Biden's now 95%, so right. he might get in. We already have 14 candidates in. Who's your, who's your, who's your, what horse are you riding? I have not picked one yet, but I, I will. Are you close? I, no, no not, not quite. But I was, I was disappointed that Sherrod Brown decided not to run. You know, I was I'm, too. I'm from Michigan. I was surprised too. I think, I think Sherrod uh, would be real attractive in those states that we have to win in order to take the presidency. I mean, let's face it, if we could win... Three out of the four of Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Wisconsin, assuming, assuming we have Minnesota. Yeah. You win three out of those four, we're in, we're in much better shape. And I think Sherrod sort of carries a profile that would have been very attractive in those states. It's not to say that the others won't, mm-hmm. um, but I was disappointed because um, I could have seen myself, um, you know, aligning with Sherrod. But right. You know, I, I um, can Joe Biden do that same job in those I states. Think Joe fits that that niche, uh, I think, fairly well too. Uh, of Joe, so 
Look, I think there's an there's an interesting thing going on within the Democratic Party. You know, we all do have our favorites, but I haven't seen it quite like this, where folks are saying, "Look, there's one goal here, and <laughs> as long as it's somebody that we have some confidence that can go into the November election and be a rational, you know, thoughtful person who's not insane, um, we want we need to beat Donald Trump. This this guy is a a threat that is bigger than any of the differences that we might have between the various Democratic candidates. He's a threat to our system of democracy. He's a threat to to our society. And so it's interesting, like, I, the, the sort of normal camps that you see forming, they may be forming, but they're not forming with the same bright lines that we've had in the past. You know, let's get somebody who can win. Right. Um, now, I find that, too, more Democrats I talk to around the country. Yeah. That... Um, yeah, they may have a favorite, but they're still holding off from like a firm, firm commitment. Right. Uh, to sort of see, first of all, who's in. Yeah. Uh, how they play in the first few weeks or months. Maybe the first debate's going to be pretty important. It'll right. Be pretty Shaking important. It down. Pretty and big. Think, pretty long. There'll be a lot of people <laughs> in. <it. You> know? <laughs> That's true. Two nights in a row. Right. With a lot of candidates. <laughs> right. But basically looking at, okay. Which one is the strongest one? Carry the strongest message, right? Uh, and and the the one we can most count on to get rid of Donald yeah. Trump. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of friends that are running. Um, some that may Beto O'Rourke's a really oh, that's right. close friend of him. Yeah. yeah, and so who knows? I mean, he may make a decision. And I think I think he will reignite a lot of that interest that he generated when he was running against Cruz. He's he's a. Have you talked to him? I talk to him fairly often. So what's what, what's uh, what's he telling you, or what do you sense from your what? conversations with him? I'm, is he really seriously yeah. thinking it? I, that that one thing that is one thing I can say is that he is he is taking a very serious and very deliberate approach to this. This is a pretty big decision when you think about it. It's not like running for township trustee. It's a big deal. Yeah, and it's something you maybe do once. You know, and only one. So it's a question that one has to go through pretty seriously. And I think he has taken that. Now, what the conclusion is, we'll have to wait and see. Well, there's no doubt that, I mean, he did such an incredible job in building that reservoir of support for a Senate race in Texas and coming so close yeah. in Texas to defeating Ted Cruz. But does he believe he can, you know, recreate that nationwide? I mean, he, got, he got money from all over the country. For sure. It wasn't just Texas. But yeah. Th- I, is that a presidential I don't know what campaign. he believes. I believe he could. I do. Really? Yeah. yeah. Just, you know, I traveled to 25 congressional districts when we, we were trying to win back the House in 2018. Every one of those places, somewhere along the way, there was a question about Beto. And this was when he was running for the Senate. Um, people asked about him. They wanted to know more about him. I, I, would, I was in Springfield, Illinois, knocking on doors for a candidate. There was a Beto for Senate sign in the window. Uh, I saw that almost everywhere. So there's he, there's something there um, for sure. And, you know, look, at he's a really smart guy who's really thoughtful about policy, takes the big view, um, and is has integrity. And, uh, you know, compare that to a not-so-smart guy with no integrity who's not thoughtful at all and is unlikable. The current president. Mm-hmm. I put the two of those against one another any day and feel pretty good about where we'd go. Listen, if Beto O'Rourke jumps in, uh, just put in a good word for us, okay? Tell him to stop by the show sometime. Yeah, right. 
I'll bring him over. Bring yeah, him yeah, over. Bring him All over. Right, here. Okay. <laughs> hey, we've already had one presidential candidate in studio. Alan so. Wang. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, Alan uh, Yang. Uh, um, uh, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. Wang. Y- Yang. Sorry. Yang. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's been in. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm surprised right. you haven't yeah. endorsed him yet. If you and Peter have to work for 30 seconds to figure out what his first <laughs> I know. name is, I know. I know. <laughs> you um, you used the I word a few minutes ago. Now, I want to ask you about that because, you know, Speaker Pelosi, almost all the le- leadership, they're saying, no, impeachment is not part of the agenda. We're not thinking about it. We're not moving there. And then we saw uh, Chairman uh, Jerry Nadler issue uh, 81 requests for documents, and he says, you were looking at obstruction of justice and abuse of power. I mean, those are the two things that both Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon were right. impeached for, or right. almost impeached for, and took it as a Nixon. So is, is are these oversight hearings, be honest, really just laying the groundwork for impeachment? I think it, it I don't know that it's laying the groundwork for impeachment, but I, I have a slightly different take than some members. I don't think we really have much of a choice once the facts are presented. I don't think, for example, we get to think, well, you know, the Senate probably wouldn't convict him, so should we yeah. initiate impeachment? My view is the Constitution is clear. Um, if the if we see evidence that the president has engaged in abuse of power, high crimes of misdemeanors, whatever definition each of us may apply, I don't think we get to make a political calculation about it. I think I don't think we want to be measured in the long view of history that we made a political calculation about impeachment. If the if the information's there, and here's the way I look at it: if the piece, if the whole picture looks anything like the pieces of the puzzle that we've seen so far, I think it's very difficult to avoid. But we need to get that whole picture, and that's what Jerry is going after. What are the rest? What is now that we've seen some of this? What does the rest of this look? Well, like? I was going to say. So where does the whole picture come from? Uh, Robert Mueller report. That's one big piece. Uh, the tax returns, which we are pursuing, I'm a member of the Ways and Means Committee, and we are taking a very careful approach to this, but we're going to get it done to get the president's tax returns. That will help fill in a lot of the blanks. Okay. And then the the request for uh, for documents and information that the Judiciary Committee is asking for will be, will be a pretty rich set of information as well. Yeah. Uh, and Chairman Nadler did say uh, on, I think, uh, this week, last, last Sunday morning, uh, in response to a question from George Stephanopoulos, that he does believe that Donald Trump did obstruct justice. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's 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 a pretty impeach- strong statement, right? And and, right. and I don't, I haven't come to the judgment that he's obstructed justice in the manner that would lead to impeachment. But I could easily draw that conclusion if there, if there's more evidence that corroborates that. Like for example, if some of the information that Mr. Cohen. Um, asserted during his testimony before the Oversight Committee is borne out by other facts, the president's got a real problem. Right. Um, so it could lead either to, I guess, impeachment or even building a stronger case for 2020. Either right. way, yeah. And I think, like I said, I think we, we fall into a bit of a trap if we start predicating what we do based on what we think the political implication might be. There are there are just some moments where you just have to rise above that, and I think we're in one of those moments, right? You know, because some have said, "No, don't impeach him," because we want him wounded in 2020. I, I think that's an over, an over uh, calculating approach to it. I stood there and swore an oath to the Constitution of the United States. Before I think about 
the election, I have to be able to look at myself in the mirror and say that I upheld that oath. And that is, I think, the question we're going to have to ask when we get all this. So you are saying that if, if there is sufficient evidence, that do you think Democrats will be ready to move on impeachment before 2020? If there's sufficient evidence, I don't think we have a choice, personally. Right. I really don't. Well, it looks, it looks more and more like it could be headed in, in, in that direction. Um, okay, you got to vote. All right. HR1, you got to get down there and, uh, and you know, shakes, break some arms. That's right. <laughs> I am the chief deputy whip. <laughs> yeah, go get him. <laughs> Congressman Dan Kildee from uh, Michigan's 5th Congressional District. And when we come back from the L.A. Times, Jennifer Habercorn covers the uh, Congress for the Times. She'll be joining us as well to give us her insights into what's going on over there. Congressman, always good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you, Bill. Best to all of uh, the good people of Flint, Michigan. Thank you. All right. And we'll be a quick break. We'll be right back. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. Happy Friday, everybody. Great to have you with us here on a Friday, March 8th, the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital. And joining you all across this great land of ours, brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Yes, indeed, under President Jim Hoffa, good men and women of the Teamsters Union. Uh, we all live better because of their good work. And check out their website at teamster, teamster.org. Uh, and with uh, the Congress in session today, uh, they don't always work on Fridays, but it's been a, a busy week for them. We want to uh, check into what we can expect the uh, Today and in the coming weeks, uh, nobody better to do it than Jennifer Habercorn, who is who covers the Congress for the Los Angeles Times. Jennifer, welcome in. Nice Thanks to see so you. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Right. Uh, it's been a strange week this week for the <laughs> for the Congress. Um, before we get to some of the other stuff that's happened, what's on the agenda today? So today they're going to vote on HR one. This is their big, um, you know, symbolically one is their highest profile piece of legislation. And it makes a lot of changes to voting rights. Um, it would change, uh, it would require um, new gerrymandering rules uh, in the idea of not having these, you know, really salamandery uh, congressional districts. It would make Election Day a national holiday. It would change campaign finance rules. Um, this is not going to go anywhere in the Republican controlled Senate, but this is the biggest push Democrats want to make this year. So, voting rights reform is one big part of it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, aren't there some ethics? stuff and um, campaign finance, too. Yeah, campaign finance. It would um, make the system publicly financed. Um, it would really uh, change the way elections are financed in this country, um, and it would be public money. Um, uh, at least the incentive would be public money. It would, right. it would incentivize candidates to uh, raise small donations from individuals and then be financed publicly as well. Is this, you know, um, there are a lot of good ideas in this legislation. Is it like, and at any other time, I think each one of these ideas might be a separate piece of legislation, right? To um, make Election Day a national holiday, I could see that. That's like one bill, right? To say we're going to have publicly financed campaigns, which I've always supported, that's going to be another bill. Mm -hmm. I mean, is this sort of like what what they used to call them Christmas tree pieces yeah. of legislation? Yeah, like that's kind too of much in it to get it all done at one time. Um, they they took basically everybody's bill that had anything to do with campaign finance, uh, voting rights, um, and put it into one piece of legislation. Um, and the idea was that um, it, it's a message bill. Why, let's get it all in there at one time and make it as powerful as we can. The result, though, is that some of these 
pieces of legislation are controversial. Um, in fact, the ACLU has come out against the bill because of some pieces in there. Really? Um, yeah. And uh, th- they wrote a, an extensive letter saying, we support a lot of this stuff, but we can't support every piece of it. So they actually asked for a bunch of amendments to change some of the things. Um, you know, they're they're concerned about the definition of a foreign entity. Like, they, they support the idea of not having foreign entities um, funding campaigns in this country, right. they say the definitions are not written correctly and it could be interpreted improperly. They had a whole laundry list of things that they wanted changed. Um, and so that kind of muddles the Democrats' message if mm-hmm. the ACLU isn't on board with your voting rights legislation. Um, so in hindsight, maybe it would have been better to do these one at a time. You know, Election Day is a national holiday. That's very easy to message. Yeah, yeah. It would be kind of hard to explain why you're opposed to that. Um but because you have so much in here, it kind of muddles the message. I mean, I can see why um, Republicans particularly would oppose it, right? Because mm-hmm. um, it makes it easier for more people to vote. This seems to be the last thing they want. But you're right. The Democrats got a message, and it would be hard. They have they'd have a harder time uh, opposing it. So, what are the prospects in the House? Um, Oh, Slam dunk for pass. Democrats, right? Right. All the Democrats will support it. Um, I'm sure all the Republicans will be against it. In the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell has uh, strangely made this a kind of pet project of his to I know. oppose he it. He sort of dismisses it as a gimmick for Democrats to take control or something. Right. right? He calls it the Democrat Politician Protection Act. Right. Um, and uh, he said it won't come up for a vote in the Senate. And um, he's just been messaging over and over against it, which is... I, I'm I'm kind of unsure why he's doing that because he's, you know, made a big thing about opposing the Green New Deal, and yet he's going to call that up for a vote to try to embarrass Democrats. But he doesn't want to bring this one up for a vote. At least he hasn't indicated that publicly yet. Um, Maybe he's afraid it will pass. Perhaps, <laughs> 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 or that it would at least be a hard vote for some of his Republicans. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that's that is today. Mm-hmm. That's right. Right. That's right. Uh, and this comes on the heels of yesterday's blockbuster vote. 407 to 23. Right. Gosh. Everybody sitting there says, I hate hate. Right. <laughs> but yet 23 people opposed it. Right. Uh, and I, that has really overshadowed this H.R. 1 vote, which was supposed to be the highest profile thing Democrats did. And yet we spent most of the week talking about this controversy about Congresswoman Elon Omar's comments. Right. And so it, it, it did. So did Democrats make a mistake in allowing this to overshadow the H.R. 1 vote? I mean, I think if you talk to Democrats, they would say yes, if they're being honest. Um, I mean, it the- seems to me they walked into a trap. A trap was laid by Republicans goading them into mm-hmm. how can you let this one statement by this one member of Congress not go unanswered when, in fact, they have let thousands of uh, hateful statements by Donald Trump go unremarked right. and unresponded to. And uh, and so Democrats thought, oh, yeah, well, we can't let that. Then we have to come up with this great big resolution, right, which ended up being almost meaningless in terms of if you hate anything for anybody for any reason that's wrong, right? Right. And, yeah, okay, well. And Democrats kind of rushed the measure because they were worried Republicans were going to embarrass them. Republicans get one amendment on each House vote. Um, and a, a couple weeks ago, when Congresswoman yes. Omar had other comments, they were able to embarrass Democrats by using their one mm-hmm. amendment vote uh, to be opposed to anti-Semitism. Democrats ended up voting for it. So now this time, H.R. 1 was coming up, and Democrats were worried that, again, Republicans would do this. So they kind of 
said, okay, mm. let's not wait for Republicans to put an anti-Semitism measure on the floor. Let's do it ourselves. But then, you know, it, it wasn't enough to just be opposed to anti-Semitism. You had to be opposed to anti-Muslim bigotry. And uh, then it kind of snowballed. And yesterday they put out a resolution two hours before the vote and then had to add to it an hour before the vote to add um, that they are opposed to um, discrimination against Latinos, LGBTQ people, and uh, people of uh, Asian American and uh, Pacific Islander descent. So it kind of became a little goofy. It had so many things in there that it was essentially meaningless. You know, it Republicans were, um, you know, it, it initially seemed like Republicans were going to support it. But then I was I was in the chamber when they voted, and a couple Republicans. Um, Put, put a no up and you can you can see the whole list of names on in the mm-hmm. in the chamber and then a bunch of republicans started adding on and those 23 who opposed it are a lot of conservatives many of them from texas um kind of who you expect to oppose a measure like this and uh congresswoman congressman steve king from iowa who got, got in trouble himself for some uh yeah hello. measures voted right. present yeah there's not been a resolution condemning anything that Steve King has ever said, has there? There's not, but he was kicked off. Kicked off his, his committees. committees, but he's still in the in the House, and mm. and uh, I I don't remember calls for him to resign the way there were calls for Congresswoman uh, Omar to resign as well. But I did see this morning that um, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez tweeted this morning. Uh, about an hour ago, quote, where's the outrage over the 23 GOP members? I hate it when that happens. <laughs> You're reading something and it, and it goes away. Uh, over the 23 GOP members who voted no on a resolution condemning bigotry. <laughs> so, Yeah, it's a little hard to justify your no vote there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh Louis Gohmert from Texas, he said ahead of time that he was going to vote no because um, uh, hatred and anti-Semitism should not be watered down by all these other measures. And uh, Republicans tried to say afterward that the measure became meaningless, so their no vote is just as, as, uh, you know, insignificant. And um, I'm not sure whether that's going to stand. This seems like a vote that would be really hard to defend later when you're trying to explain it to your constituents. What does it say about... Uh, and Republicans were trying to make a big I- issue that disproves uh, of the fact that this shows how uh, disunited or fractured the Democratic caucus is or the Democratic Party is in the House uh, and how sort of um, tentative maybe or shaky is Nancy Pelosi's leadership. You know, I think this wasn't her best week. And, um, you know, we saw that she came out on Monday, leadership said, we're going to do this anti-Semitism resolution. And then they had to walk that back a bit and change the resolution. Um, it was really a rare instance in which Speaker Pelosi didn't have the right um, answer for her caucus. Usually she's pretty good about knowing where her members are, knowing you know which uh, dozen members to talk to to find mm-hmm. out where the rest of the caucus is. And in this instance, it seems like that wasn't the case. But, you know, every Democrat voted for the measure, Yeah. which right. if if the vote had splintered on the Democratic side, that would have been even worse for her. And she did, uh, if we can hear her uh, Peter here, she did frame it yesterday as saying, uh, I mean, in, in a, she, she ended up defending 
Congresswoman Ilhan Omar mm-hmm. saying and and saying this resolution was not aimed at her. It was an expression against all forms of hate. Here's the speaker. I don't believe it was intended in any anti-Semitic mm-hmm. way. But the fact is, if that's how it was interpreted, we have to remove all doubt. Right. And so therefore she said uh, that this, this, this resolution. Attacks on Jewish people, anti-Semitic tropes, prejudicial accusations, or any other form of hatred is deeply and unequivocally offensive and must be condemned wherever it is heard. Right. So that it's, again, but, but it came to the point where it mentioned so many things that right. almost mentioned nothing, in a sense, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, one of the Republicans pointed out that the measure um, condemned death threats against Jewish members and Muslim members of Congress, but not everybody else. And it's like, okay, <laughs> death threats against any member is bad, regardless of their religious uh, background. And I did see that the three Muslim members of Congress put out a statement saying, noting that as awkward as it was uh, and as broadly worded as it was, it was, in fact, I believe they said the very first time the United States Congress has gone on record condemning Mm anti-Muslim statements. Yeah. And And there's certainly been a lot of those by members of Congress and by President of the United States. Right. And, you know, we're seeing some effect. You know, we saw the election of two, the first two Muslim women members, Ilan Omar and uh, Rashida Talab of Michigan. And you know, maybe that is starting to change some of the debate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly it is about Israel. I'm not sure if it, that's the direction Democrats want to go right now, but um, they've, uh, particularly Congresswoman Omar, has said that she wants to make people feel a little uncomfortable, and she perhaps has gone further than other Democrats would like in this instance, but she's having an effect on the conversation. Right. Um, and, and, and there could be a silver lining here, um, as someone who I thought this whole resolution was silly, but the silver lining could be if it if it makes the point that it is perfectly okay to criticize the right wing policies of Benjamin Netanyahu and to that extent the Israeli government, just like you can criticize mm-hmm. the policies of France or Germany or any other country on the planet. And Netanyahu has not always been our friend. I mean, he undercut Barack Obama. He basically endorsed Donald Trump, mm-hmm. right, uh, in, in, uh, in, 20, in 2016. So he's fair game. Yeah, I'm curious what the long-term impact of this is going to be, if, if it, it is going to allow some more true conversation and, and debate on that subject, or if and, this is going to kind of ch- have a chilling effect and make people think, if I say anything against Israel— I'm going to get a resolution against me. I, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it better not lead there <laughs> because that would be that would be really dangerous, which is a point that Bernie Sanders and mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren and others made yesterday as well. I mean, I, I personally think that there's one person who you could say is responsible for the fact that there's been no resolution toward, or no movement toward peace in the Middle East in the last 10 or 12 years. It's Benjamin Netanyahu uh, single-handedly has scuttled uh, every, every, every attempt and doesn't want it to happen. Uh, we'll see how that we'll see how that plays out. Meanwhile, they're still pending the national emergency, which has taken uh, an unusual twist. Right, the resolution to nullify the mm-hmm. national emergency or overturn it, which passed the House readily mm-hmm. with no republic. No, there were a few republic. Twelve, there were. right? Uh, uh, About something 12, like that. Some, yeah, yeah, not as many as I thought there might be, but right. Um, and everybody thought, well, but it'll never get through the Senate. 
Looks like it might. I think it will. I mean, unless something changes before Thursday when they're expected to have the vote for Republicans. Next Thursday. That's right. Mm-hmm. Four Republicans have come out and said that they would support the measure. There's 47 Democrats, so that equals 51, enough uh, to get passage in the Senate. And, um, yeah, I, you know, like uh, um, it would be an embarrassment to the White House. Mitch McConnell admitted on Monday that he thought it would pass and uh, said, you know. I thought I, that was huge. Right. Like he, he actually acknowledged that he he can't can't stop it. Right. right. And there's very little they can do because this is a measure that, um, you well, know, he didn't support it in the first place. Right. right. And I think that's kind of why he made those comments on Monday mm-hmm. to make clear, like, I didn't support this in the first place. And now the White House is going to be embarrassed. It's not my fault. Um, but, you know, now that it's going to pass, it's kind of a free vote for Republicans. Um, those Republicans who might want to distance themselves from the White House, perhaps if they're running for, in for reelection in two years and they need some distance from Trump, this is going to be a way to do that now. So I think we're going to see more than four Republicans vote against the measure. Um, And, you know, the White House has seemingly done very little to stop this. I'm surprised there isn't more outreach to some of these Republicans. Um, We haven't seen Donald Trump tweeting at individual members saying, you know, that Rand Paul, he's really awful because he's voting for this measure. Um, And that's kind of different. Um, I I would think the White House would be trying to prevent this embarrassment. At the same time, there's not enough Republicans to overcome a presidential veto. Mm-hmm. And so the president presumably will veto this measure and we'll be back where we started from that the declaration is on. Well, I just have to say, I hope they have more votes than the four, uh, because if they're counting on Rand Paul to stick to, <laughs> his, to, stick to his word, uh, we've seen Rand Paul make a lot of noise before and then fold it the last time after Donald Trump invites him down to the White House or out to play golf or something, right? So they better have seven or eight lined up to get to four. I think they will. Um, You know, Senator Lamar Alexander. uh, Oh, he's um, been very outspoken. He has. And he came out with a very interesting statement. He didn't say that he would vote for the measure, but he said, the White House Mm -hmm. really needs to rethink this and come up with something different, which I interpreted as... There's enough Republicans here, um, and if the White House wants to avoid embarrassment, I'm, I'm giving you the, the flag right now. Yeah, here he is yesterday saying, you know, they basically don't need this emergency declaration. If the goal is to build the wall and to build it quickly, the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to take the money that's already approved, which the president has identified, and get on with it. If he insists on the national emergency, he runs the risk of years of litigation and delay. Yeah, that that's pretty close to saying, right. I'm not going to vote for it. Uh, and uh, we know, as you mentioned, uh, uh, or I did, I guess, on the last half hour, Ch- Senator Chuck Grassley has said mm-hmm. similar things, uh, and Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, and others. Uh, yeah, these are Just the... starting with Mitch McConnell. But we had a clip a couple of weeks ago of Marco Rubio saying if he oh. does have this national emergency, he's going to fight it. He's going to fight this. Marco Rubio is going to fight this. So we've all seen Marco Rubio fighting this, right? We haven't heard right? from him at <laughs> all, have we? <laughs> I don't think so. No. But, you know, there are several Republicans here who are worried about the long-term implications and, and the precedent. And I have seen the president tweet, you know, this isn't about precedent. This is about border security. Yeah, right. No. 
They're, they're worried about the precedent of a, a future president uh, doing the same thing for his or her pet project. Right. And some of them, and this is Tom Tillis's point, they're worried. They, they see that this is a, a very clear end run around the Constitution and a violation of, a, of the separation of powers and mm-hmm. the president seizing the funding authority, which belongs only to Congress under mm-hmm. Article One of the Constitution. So, uh, I mean, there are legitimate conservative reasons to oppose us. Now, uh, Jennifer, some people, Jennifer Habercorn is with us from the L.A. Times. It's latimes.com. Um, some people are, are already predicting that, that what looks like is going to be a defeat for Donald Trump on this <laughs> resolution in the Senate mm-hmm. indicates that the Senate, the, a fractured Republican Senate base for Donald Trump on other issues, right? That this is from this is the beginning of the end of the Senate always doing what Donald Trump wants. That is there enough basis there for that, or is that uh, going I, too far? I don't think so. I mean, to your earlier point that there are conservative um, constitutional reasons to oppose this measure, I think that's put this puts this in a slightly different category than other legislation. Um, and you know, a lot of the Republicans are up for reelection. Mm-hmm. In two years, in states that Trump won, um, and so there's going to be very yeah, little. Yeah, and reason. with Trump with like eighty-eight or ninety percent of support among Republicans, right? There's going to be very they little. They don't dare reason. challenge him. Exactly. Um, there's just two Republicans running in states where Trump lost: Susan Collins in Maine, and uh, Cory Gardner in Colorado. The rest of them are all in Trump states, and so I don't see. Republicans putting much distance between them and the White House unless they really have to. I think Tom Tillis would kind of be the third most likely to break with the um, White House because North Carolina is a very swing state. Um, but I think I think the next two years are going to be the Senate Republicans moving in the direction of Donald Trump. And um, I guess I don't I don't I don't see the basis for for that theory at this point. Um, of course, that could change if if Trump's poll numbers think even further for some reason. Maybe maybe we'll see that. Also, there's not going to be a ton of legislation this year. Um, well, well, I was going to ask you about that, whether it, what, what, what we should expect in terms of uh, this is the one year to get things done, right? I mean, technically, this is not an election year. <laughs> although, Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> although every day you turn around, there are more people. More Last people year it was a presidential election year, practically. You know? <laughs> I mean, it just gets earlier and earlier. Yeah, right. Uh, so this was the year in between the midterms and the presidential election. And so this one would think this would be the year when you would have right. a very busy legislative agenda. No? It should be the case, but yeah, no, it's not. Um uh, infrastructure and prescription drugs. Oh, whoa. What was that word? <laughs> infrastructure. infrastructure. Where is the infrastructure bill? You know, it's, it should be the easiest thing to put together and right. the easiest piece of legislation to get passed. And here we are now three years into the Trump administration and there's we haven't seen any infrastructure legislation. I'm still skeptical that it's actually going to happen, but it's definitely number one in terms of most likely bipartisan accomplishment. Um, and the House is starting to work on it very slowly. They had a hearing yesterday on ways to pay for it. Um, 
which is going to be the most controversial element. You know, obviously Republicans are going to want to pay for it. Um, Democrats are floating measures that are kind of unlikely to get Republican support. Um, but my question right now is how much does the White House actually want that? Because if the White House comes out and puts some muscle behind it and say, we're serious here, let's do something bipartisan, then Nancy Pelosi has a tough decision to make. Do we do this? Do we give um, everybody something to go home and run on? Or do we push back? And um, I don't think we know the answer to that quite or yet. Or Democrats could take the initiative and say, yeah. we're going to put together a package and let everybody have their pet project in it, right? Right. I mean, and for it, building whatever, new and roads, it becomes new a bridges, tree. repairing right. stuff and and put a dollar price tag on it. I think it would be hard for Trump to veto. I totally agree. And, um, you know, for as much as we talk about the progressives among the new freshman mm-hmm. Democratic class, there's a lot of moderates who won in red districts. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, and they in particular are pushing this and want something to go home and run. Here's on. an idea. Let's have an infrastructure week. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Every week is infrastructure week. I yeah, we haven't that. heard that one in a while. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jennifer, thanks for keeping on top of all this stuff for us. Okay, thanks for coming in. Thanks so at much LATimes.com. Have a great weekend, folks. We'll be back on Monday, this and you will too. Bill Press Show.